Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- 451-4220. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your host with the most, Tiny Tim. What's cracking, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today we have a return visit from political correspondent and friend of the Bystander Podcast, Joel Underwood. What's cracking? How you doing, brother? Good to be back. Real well. Hey, um, before we get started, I wanted to uh, give a little shout out since it's the giving season and the end of the year, and I'd like you to do the same and and give some love to some people. I'd like to give some love to the constant um, sponsors of this podcast in Eagle Harbor Insurance, Blue Canary Auto, Great Northern Electric, and the new sponsor for the 2020 season, Manscaped. Also, give a shout out to Coach Henry and BI Hoops. Also, like to thank the people that previously sponsored the podcast in the past year in Office Expats, Scott Lever at Repoint Real Estate. Full-time fantasy sports. And, of course, I'd love to give a shout-out to the music that makes this podcast go and the terrific Ralph Rain. So good. Thank you. And uh, Steve Newton over there at the Music Guild. Um, And thank you, listeners, so much for this podcast and uh, 
having enough listenership to keep it running for two years. I appreciate it. Man, there's nothing more important than, than local journalism. I know we've talked about it on this show before, but when you've got good local journalism, you're less likely to get your news from cable networks. You're more likely to look at things issue by issue. You're less likely to likely to vote straight party ticket. Local journalism is everything, and and so many of the problems I think we're having in terms of division and hatred is can be chalked up to the loss of lo- good local journalism. Just like this. That's why, yeah. Thanks to all those those people who are sponsoring you, reaching out, people who are listening, and it shows. I believe. Um, if I'm not wrong, pod, Podcast Business Journal, let me say that right, Podcast Business Journal, uh, just named you among the top 10 local podcasts of 2019. Are we correct? We are. You've broken news here on the Bystander Podcast, not for the first time either, Joel. But yes, uh, shout out to Podcast Business Journal for choosing this podcast as one of the best local podcasts. I think it's international because... yeah. There was Hong Kong and a few others. So That's what it, I read. Yeah. Quite the shocking out of the blue award. So I appreciate it. And I think it bodes well for citizen journalists and podcasters in small communities that, you know, we, we can reach people and we can share the beauty of Bainbridge Island and we can have civil discussions, long format that are not just headlines that you see scrolling through your phones or hearing on the radio when you hop in your car between here and there. Yeah, not just quick sound bites of 15 seconds that maybe make you laugh or affirm what you personally might think, but really do educate you. And as Jefferson said, man, an educated electorate, that's the whole ballgame. If people know what they're voting for and they know what the issues are and they're thinking about them issue by issue, not just what your tribe is telling you to think, man, now now democracy works. Mm Mm-hmm. Um. I want to want to give a with that said I was going to go another route but uh I'll I'll give a shout out to Tulsi Gabbard because she did exactly that she did she voted present in the impeachment um vote the other day both times and she thought for herself and she didn't just go with the mob mentality and go down her party lines she thought a different way you can decide whether you agree or disagree with her and her voting, but she had enough power to stand by herself amongst many and not vote. You also had two Democrats who voted against, right? You had yeah. two Democrats who voted no. Uh, one that turned Republican the next day. And then one, yeah, one who was was a dino, Democrat in name only, and, and basically next, the next day turned. Um, who, but, was, who was that, Jack Holt? But here's the, here's the thing. There's, there's nothing wrong with your opinions evolving. I think we get way too caught up in modern American politics. It's just a personal soapbox of telling people, okay, well, you voted this. In fact, we saw it in some of the debates last night. Well, you voted this way 20 years ago. So that means you think, or you voted for this amendment 10 years ago, or you voted for the Iraq war back then. So that makes you a, and we got to be really, really careful with the idea that that people can't evolve. There's nothing wrong with, with holding someone to their record, but saying you don't get to change your opinion on anything. You have to be exactly who you were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever. That gets us to a very dangerous place where we don't get to evolve and we don't get to get better at what we think. Look at um, President Obama, for instance, on the marriage equality issue. Right? He he came around. He said, now, if you want to be anti, you can, you can say that he came around when the polling said come around. But 
we, we get to change our minds. We get to learn more. When I find out new information about a topic, I am allowed to change my mind, and I should be. And I really hope that the people that are my leaders, I hope that my senators, my congressmen, my governor, my president, heck, my mayor and my city council people, if they find new information, they're allowed to change their mind. And, and if you're not, we, we get into a very scary place of codification. What about a week after you get elected? Meaning? <laughs> There's a certain councilman that came in here one day and said he was adamant about a certain um, suggestion not being passed and he would never vote for it. And then the vote came a week after he got elected and he did vote for it. You know, getting into power makes all kinds of I mean, we, we see the probably the biggest example of that is the Supreme Court when we see people get lifetime appointments. So now you're untouchable. I mean, you, you go back and you look at Earl Warren, who uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower appointed to be a fairly conservative justice, Eisenhower himself being fairly conservative. And what does Warren end up doing? He gives us Brown v. Topeka. He, he gives us some of the most, quote unquote, liberal decisions ever because that and that's what the founders intended is when you get that lifetime appointment. So you are no longer politically responsive. You may be a little different now. What it sounds like what you're talking about, and I'm I'm not nearly as up on my Bainbridge local politics as as I would like to be. But there are also politicians who, once they get what they want, turn around and go, "Ha! I got mine!" Slam the door. Sure, that happens all the time. But I I think what we 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 got to counterbalance that, which is one of the reasons that I think Tom Steyer, uh, you know, gained a little bit of traction last night when he was talking so openly about term limits. Mm-hmm. We we gotta make room for even our leaders to find out new information and maybe even change their opinion because you and I would let each other do that. Yeah. So why wouldn't we? Well, we're reasonable. (laughs) So why should our leaders not be held to that same reasonable standard? Hey, before we get into the democratic debate and the American politics, I want to um, figure out what the hell's going on (laughs) with this Brexit thing. I don't (laughs) I think I have, the British people would like to figure out what the hell's going on. With I have a hard time thing. understanding the parliament and, hey, you're the leader until you're no longer the right. leader type situation. Can you explain how? So Jeremy Corbyn of the Labor Party uh, gambled and lost. And he lost big. I mean, huge numbers in England in terms of a rejection of what he was primarily running on, which is anti-Brexit and heavy-duty labor. And Boris Johnson and, and the Tory party swept up big, which would tell you on the surface that the majority of British citizens are not interested in having another vote on Brexit. They still want to leave the European Union, and they'd like to have a plan for doing that. Now, the problem is leaving the European Union in terms of trade and money is not – like a band-aid that you can just rip off and the faster you do it, the better it is. You got to have a plan. You got to figure out what's going to happen in terms of taxes and tariffs, and especially an area as complicated as the UK. For instance, you've got British citizens who are saying they would like to leave the EU. But then if you look at the vote up in Scotland, they came out very clearly for the party that said, no, I don't want to leave. And so what you get now is are we looking potentially at another Scottish independence vote, which we didn't think was coming up for a while, but now maybe coming up fairly shortly. And Boris Johnson's been very clear. We're not letting them go. And the Scottish people are going, just try and stop us. So uh, then, then let's look across the, uh, the, the little canal there at Ireland, 
So what are you going to do with Ireland? That was always the problem with Brexit. Are you going to have a return to the troubles by creating a new hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland as there hasn't been for a long time? Is Ireland going because Ireland's going to stay in the EU? They are very they have very clearly said we're staying. So is Britain going to take Northern Ireland with it? Now you're going to have a hard border again. Are we going to see a disaggregate in the UK between Britain, Scotland, Ireland, Northern Ireland. Oh, what the heck? Let's throw Wales in there. Are we going to see the UK begin to disaggregate as we reach the quarter pole of the 21st century? Because that could be very easily happen. European Union, EU, mm-hmm. Brexit, still don't know what the hell it is. Is it the currency? It is, an, it is, it is, the, it is the name that has been given by UKIP, which is the, the party that wanted to leave of the the uh, uh, Kingdom of England leaving voluntarily from the EU. Picture uh, Texas so just you, just you, wanting to say, you know what, we're we're out. We're gonna we're so, not gonna be the United States anymore. We're uh, gonna gotcha. become the country of Texas. We're gonna do Texit. And and we're gonna leave. Which by the way, they have flirted with from time to time. Uh, but yeah, and saying that they're they're going to uh, I don't know if you've traveled to Europe recently, but they they want to uh, uh, get rid of all the things in in terms of ease of border crossing, and you've got one EU pass, and you go through all the different borders, and then there's taxes and tariffs that are so much easier because you're in the EU. So you're talking about taking a major player out of the EU away, it, it, or, or I'll put it a different way: what if if tomorrow California said? We're starting. We're, we're the country of California now, and we're not going to be part of the EU. I mean, where would we get computer parts, and and every, everything would get so much more complicated. So, does it have anything to do with the currency? Like when I traveled, well, sure, so to England and the, Spain, you know, the euro was there, right? So, the it, I've assumed that uh, part of the plan would be that Britain would go back on the pound, mm-hmm. as opposed to being on the euro. Yeah. Oh, just a random question. Mm-hmm. Greece. They had financial troubles. I haven't heard about them for a long, long time. Well, so there, there, here's another part about the EU is, so what do you do when a country like, say, Greece, like, say, Italy, like, say, Ireland, as we have seen, gets in economic difficulties, right? Because they very frankly don't have manufacturing-based economies. If you don't have anything really going on but tourism – and you don't have any you don't make anything or produce anything that the rest of the world wants to buy eventually your economy is going to go in the crapper so what a lot of people argue is well the eu then ends up being basically an international welfare system. You're asking the rich company uh, countries like Germany, for instance, who always seems to be handed the bill at the restaurant um, <laughs> yeah. ah, who ordered the baklava again you're asking the rich com- countries to come in and fit and foot the bill and pony up billions and billions of dollars to keep these other countries from crashing down because there really isn't a Greek economy and an Irish economy and a German economy and a French economy. There's the European economy. And what the, the Brits are, are saying is, listen, we'll take that chance. We'll take that risk. We think we're, we're strong enough. But why should we foot the bill for the fact that Greece wants everybody to be able to retire at 55 with 70% benefits? Why well, should the, why like should the British taxpayer <laughs> have to do that? Right. So, wow. So, Boris, right now, what's, bring me up to speed with uh, – the current situation with Boris and Brexit, Brexit, there's not going to be another vote. So, so right. So, what Boris 
uh, was trying to do was create a government that had a plan and had a hard date for a British exit from the EU. Uh, and he wasn't getting it from Parliament. People were saying, well, no, we want to have another vote to see if the, the British people want to leave the EU. We don't think the first vote was valid. Do you remember when uh, here in Seattle, we the Mariners needed a new ballpark? And by God, we just kept having votes until they approved it. Yeah, like the monorail too. It, it's kind of it's kind of like that. That there there was a, a, a structure in Britain that was just finally saying we're just going to keep having votes until we get the one we want, which is the British people don't want to leave the EU. And so finally, Boris played his his trump card. He gambled all or nothing, as did Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader. And they said, listen, let's have a real let's have a whole thing election. I'll be up for prime minister. Seats will be up for parliament. We'll check out to see if we can keep our majority. And and basically, Brexit is on the table. If you are pro-Brexit, pro-Britain leaving the EU, vote for me, vote for Boris, or vote for Jeremy. Uh, and, and Boris won big, and Jeremy got rejected hard. I mean, hard, historically low numbers for labor. Did you mean to say Trump card? Uh, no, it might have been a, a, a Freudian, Freudian slip, slip there. there. Absolutely. Mr. So, Freud, please pick up a white courtesy phone. Mr. <laughs> Sigmund Freud, please pick up a white courtesy telephone. Um, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Now you may, you said something about UTEP and Tory parties. What are those? Well, so the UTEP, the, the British don't the have uh, Democrats and Republicans. They have Labour and Tory, What's which Tory? are con- conservative and conservative versus liberal. We would we would basically say. And then the party that that the organization that uh, came out of uh, that that really started the Brexit movement was UKIP, UKIP, and and, and by the way. Let's let's be really clear on this. Brexit, in many ways, like some things that are going on in America, yeah, they want to talk about economy. Yeah, they want to talk about tariffs and taxes and things like that. Brexit is about immigration. Brexit is about British people looking around and going, wow, there's a lot of immigrants in this country. Wow, there's a lot of people from Pakistan and Syria. And wow, we're made, being made to take what we feel like is more than our fair share. And wow, the economy's not great. And I think those people are taking my job. That, that's really what's powering Brexit. And in much the same way as build the wall is happening here, you know, when people are scared and they, they don't really recognize the country that they've been in, they will They'll sign on for things when they're scared. They absolutely will. I've been doing a lot of reading lately just because of, of Andrew Yang and and Brexit and things like that about the Luddite rebellion that happened. Luddite. Luddites in, in England back when they started going around and, and during the Industrial Revolution messing up all the factories and, you know, throwing wrenches in the works and, and burning down the, the factories that the textile workers believed were taking their jobs. And in many ways, it was a very similar time to now because when people feel like their skill set is going extinct, when they feel like what they do is about to stop being valued, they can sign on for some pretty rough stuff. And right now we're seeing that happen in the UK with Brexit. We're seeing it happen here with Trump. Uh, we're seeing it happen in various places. They elected a really unsavory guy in Hungary. Uh, you know, th- there's a lots of things that – People will sign on to when they feel like not just them, but their way of life is under threat from a new world economy that seems to be out of their control. Hungry, huh? I haven't even thought about that country for a long time. But when I was a kid, there I lived in a neighborhood of mostly Hungarian immigrants. That's kind of the people that showed me the path to soccer. Interesting. I don't yeah. know why they were... 
yeah. in my neighborhood, but I mean, we, yeah, we see it in the Philippines with Duterte. We see it all over the when it was again. It was it was always the devil's bargain of a skills based economy. When you have an economy that's based on people knowing how to do stuff, skills, mm-hmm. okay. The bargain of that is every now and then on a fairly regular basis, because of the advancements of technology and innovation, groups of skills are going to become obsolete. Whole groups of people are not really going to be needed skill-wise. So what are you going to do with those people? And by the way, those people aren't stupid, and they can see when that's coming. That auto worker in Detroit can see, wow, you don't really need me anymore. That machine's going to do my job. Wow, says that farmer, industrial agriculture is taking away the American family farm. So they panic. So what do they do? They'll listen to whoever steps up to the microphone in Hungary, in the Philippines, in England, in America, who says, I can stop it. I can stop it. I can stop time. I can rewind it back, make the factory open again, make all that happen. And as soon as they say that, it's a race. And it's a race to, will that person get the power they want before the people they're talking to figure out that it's a lie? Nobody can stop time. Nobody can undiscover machination. Nobody can undiscover AI. So will the people find out it's a, it's a scam before that person gets what they want? Yeah, oxycodone right there. There you go. There's your example. Uh, maybe that's a reach, but <laughs> it's my show. I can make it is. It, I can make up things. We don't fact check. It's the number four podcast. In local, yeah, enough local of that. Podcast and business journal. <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit about China? Um, uh, feel free. Who's in charge of China? I mean, the, you mean the the Chinese Communist Party? Or are you talking about what's going on in Hong Kong specifically? No, who's in charge of China? Like, is there a president, a prime minister? Right, they have, they have a president. They have, they have Xi Jinping. Xi, um, and, Xi Jinping. And, and here's the thing. You always knew when the British handed Hong Kong back over to China that there was going to be culture shock there, that, that these were people who were not used to living under autocratic Communist Party Chinese rule. And sudden, to suddenly have that done. I mean, if tomorrow the United States gave... Uh, uh, the Kitsap Peninsula to Russia and just said, you know what? We've, we realized that sewer deal back with Alaska and everything. It, it didn't go so well. And we kind of took you. Look, here's the Kitsap Peninsula. The people on the Kitsap Peninsula would have massive culture shock, especially if suddenly the Russians said, as the Chinese are saying, when you are accused of a crime in your home in the Kitsap Peninsula or in Hong Kong, we're going to ship you. You're not going to be tried there. You're not going to be. You're not going to have a jury of your peers there. You're not going to be under democratic uh, that judicial system that you've come to know. We're going to bring you back to the mainland, and you're going to be tried here, away from friends and family, under our legal system that you don't know, uh, under a, a totally different set of rules. I mean, anybody who looked at that could have said, "Oh, there's going to be trouble." And sure enough, you have demonstrations going on, which the Chinese government has never taken too well. Tiananmen Square. So you've got this. This place, this fault line on planet Earth where Chinese autocracy is rubbing up against Western democracy and what you're seeing are these little mini earthquakes and, and what are people going to deal with? And, and the question is, is it going to explode? And if so, of course, when you've got our president, for instance, who is saying nothing, who's basically saying uh, hey, I support China, who's not coming out in support of the protesters, who's, who's in no way really standing up for human rights, that, that sends a really bad signal to China that basically 
do whatever you want to your own people. We're good with that. We'll still trade with you. We'll still give you MFN, most favored nation status. We'll still, yeah, no worries. Yeah, it blows my mind that we send out so much manufacturing to China because it has such an effect on the American worker. And then we're also rewarding a place that's detaining people, killing protesters, um, we back and forth with these tariffs and trade embargoes and such. I think it would do us a great service to just leave China in a lot of ways. Except, the, the, see, that's the problem is, and we have the same issue with Saudi Arabia, right, who does all sorts of unsavory things that we don't like. Are you going to tie diplomacy to economics? Because, for instance, Reagan, let's go back to Ronald Reagan. Reagan said you never do that. Reagan said you keep those in two separate parts of your brain nationally. There's trade and there's diplomacy. And yeah, one might help you do the other. Beatles records and blue jeans did more to bring about the fall of communism than any missile. But we have gotten to a point now where I can, I can make you a very strong argument that there is not a Chinese economy and there is not a U.S. economy. There is a world economy. We buy so much of their stuff and they make so much of our stuff and we buy it. And they buy. if they tomorrow said, hey, you're not going to get any more metals to make iPhones with, we'd, we'd be up the creek in, in the same way. There's stuff that, that if we didn't start shipping or suddenly stop shipping to them, they'd be in trouble, too. We are inextricable from one another now. It's like trying to get gum out of peanut butter. You're not going to do it. So the question is, if that's the case, if, you're, if we're not going to extricate from one another, how can we then use that to get more of what we want? That's some of what people like Pete Buttigieg were talking about last night. Do you then take that, those, that economic intertwinedness, I don't know, um, and, and use it to say, listen – when we trade with you, that means human rights that – mean, that means we're going to pay attention to how the stuff is made right. and where the stuff is made and right. whether or not your how workers – How are you sourcing are, it? And how are you sourcing it? And are you, uh, uh, are you in a factory where workers are going up at lunchtime and jumping off the roof because mm-hmm. the, of, of the long hours and things like that? Not, it's not just blind. I'm going to put my hand over my eyes and buy your stuff. If, you, if, we're, if you're going to sell things to America, you've got you to abide by some American values in that stuff. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Rebecca Hall from a boutique down in Winslow called Shift, okay. and it's all about ethically sourced clothing. Right. That's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal, and it has environmental costs. And I think what we do with China has a huge environmental and human rights cost to it as well. Um, my mantra for 2020 is is sourcing. So now I'm encouraging everybody to turn around and look at that label. And uh, Was it made in China? Was it you know fair trade? Was it ethically sourced? Is it something I really absolutely can't live without? I need to buy it. Sorry, because it's, it's Chinese. I'm still going to buy it. I don't think so. I don't think I'm in a situation where I'm so desperate that I need to rely on something that's sourced from a country that just doesn't care about their own people. Yeah, it's it's tough because the the Saudi Arabian oil and the Mexican oil and the Canadian oil and the offshore American oil all kind of go together in your gas tank. Right. You can't say, don't give me the Saudi Arabian oil, but they do horrible stuff to people. I mean, they, they throw gay people off the roof in that country and, and have horrible treatment of women. Uh, one of the things my, my youngest yeah, why daughter- why do they show those on YouTube? What do you mean? Gay guy thrown off roof in Saudi Arabia. I, I've, that's come up in my algorithm at, at some point. I'm wow. like, why? What else are you? Jeez, what else are you watching? Um, 
I'm trying one to get of the, one politically that, sane here, Joel. That's one what I'm bringing that, you in. That my my little daughter, my 13 year old, is is really into right now uh, is ethically and and cruelty free right. in terms of her cosmetics. Because yeah. she's really into, you know, she's, she gets into the cosmetics and, oh, I need this blush and this uh, stuff I don't even understand. Isn't there a place like that by um, Bay Ridge Island? Uh, oh, Museum yeah, there's all Bar- kinds of places around there. You've got to, but you got to do your work, right? you got to research. You can't just buy anything you want off the shelf. And so she's really gotten into the idea of, all right, what, you know, what, what, where did the stuff I buy come from? Everybody has a way into that somehow. For some people, it's their food. For some people, it's gasoline. Uh, for some people, it's clothing, right? For her, it's apparently going to be cosmetics. But hopefully there's some point for everybody where you get into the mindset of not just pull my stuff off the shelf and it magically was brought there by elves. Right. But the fact that everything comes from somewhere and when you buy it, you are voting with your wallet. You're saying, I like how you're doing things, company, and keep doing more. That's one of the best things I ever learned when I was about 18 or 19, probably 19. Um, a friend of mine said, hey, vote with your wallet. Mm-hmm. And we, we were out to lunch, and it was crap. And uh, he was like, hey, you don't need to pay for this, and uh, you don't need to come back here. And you hurt him by retaliating, by not giving them any money ever again. And letting, and I, I would add another layer to that, letting them know that you did that. Yeah. You know, I, I, there are various times where for corporate, because they don't know all the time, but there are, there are times with corporations where uh, if I chose rationally not to spend my money there because of a work process they have or a sourcing issue they have or a way they treat their workers or something like that, I then take that extra step, shoot them a quick email, go on their website, do whatever, let them know, hey, I had a choice the other day of which airline to fly and I chose not to fly you guys, just letting you know uh, because you do this. Thanks. Yeah, I tried no to. No hate, just letting them know, letting your voice be heard. Yeah, I did that with Great Clips. I'm going to shout you out right now, throw you under the bus, Great Uh-oh. Clips. They have an app. Not app. so Great Clips. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like going through a Supercuts drive through with those cuts. Um, <laughs> not the best, you know. You, you never like having a person, you know, reach up to your head and you see all the cut marks on their arm oh from, you know, self-deprecating, stuff like that. But they have an app that... Um, you download the app and then you check in at yeah, Great sure, Clips it, yeah. and it says 45 minute wait or whatever. But the app was down and my son wanted a haircut. So I called him. I was like, hey, he gets out of school in 45 minutes. Um, what's your wait time? I'd like to make an appointment. And they're like, y- you got to use the app. I'm like, I'm talking to uh-huh. you now. Can you just put me in on your you little have to use the app. wait list there and uh, I'll see you in an hour, two hours? Because my time was valuable. Right. And that's the whole purpose of the app is to save time. Well, for you, for the purpose of them, it's to advertise to you. Right. It's to give you pop-up ads and things that they're paying the people who paid the money. I should be able to go back to the old way. (laughs) Let's say I don't have a phone from China and I can't call you. I should be able to pop in and say, hey, can you put me on the list? And they didn't. And I, I told, I wrote a letter and I rarely write letters to complain I feel like it's much more purposeful to give somebody a compliment. It's much more difficult to give somebody a compliment. So when I do get good service, I like to write then. Yeah. If I don't, I like to just vote with my wallet, like I said. There you go. But this time, I was just a little pissed off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, listen, jackholes, I should be able to – you're in the, in the business of selling haircuts, and I want to buy a haircut, and I have cash. What is the problem here? 
Well, I'm, I got three letters from corporate and said, I'm just really sorry that you're having this inconvenience. Please download our app again. I'm like, how many times can you not read what yeah. I'm telling you? They're and all you're in. you're not getting my business. They I'm are sorry. all in on the app. Yeah, and I, um, I was there last time before this that happened, and this guy walked in off the streets, and he's like, um, like a haircut. And she's like, well, it's two and a half hour wait. And uh, I can put put you on the list since you're in here, but you got to stay in here. Mm. So he couldn't leave the facility. Oh, and, wow. And she's like, well, you could get on the app. And he, he's like 75. And he's like, oh, well, it's an app. I just want a haircut, yeah. you know? No, no, no. Anyway, back to China. Not how it works. Um, who are th- Bring me up to speed on who's in incarcerated right now in china who are they holding back protesters uh, is it muslims muslims they, they're having what now some people get very uh upset when you use this particular word and probably with good reason but there are people who would call them concentration camps where mm-hmm. they have they have rounded up muslims i mean china come on why not, why? not a why? place known for freedom of religion right mm-hmm. the, because again there is that if, if you've studied communist theory there is that idea that if you believe heavily in any religion of any kind, um, you are putting that religion in place of the state. You are putting that in the place that you should have in in your uh, uh, priority system and your pantheon that should be there for the state. And and we are we are stronger that way. Um, and by the by the way, you can understand uh, if if you I don't know if you. You came in and watched a, very nicely a play that I was in called uh, A Walk in the Woods, um, and John Ellis had that monologue that talked about geography, right? We There are certain things we will never understand because we as a, as a country have these two big oceans that keep us safe that you have to deal with before you want to come deal with us. In countries like Russia, and I would put China into this too, where you've just got big flat open plains around them that are inviting people to invade you. You have to think differently about the world. You have to think more in terms of collectivity and defense and the state. There, therefore, you, you get the rise of these systems of government in which the state must be everything. And you don't get to put God before that. Uh, uh, Lenin Family. Very, the, right. Lenin very famously claimed religion is the opiate of the masses. The, the idea that it's, it's something that, that uh, is used uh, by monarchs and, and hierarchies to keep people down. And so China has been famously – anti-religious and and christians have had problems there uh, uh and now muslims are are being rounded up and in some ways uh that you would compare potentially to and again there are people who get very nervous when you make these comparisons but in the same way you could talk about jews being rounded up during the holocaust you're being rounded up specifically on the idea of your faith and so the question then becomes to get back to what we were talking about before okay so we're over here we're the United States. We are their biggest trade partner. What are we going to do about that? Are you going to Are you going to just go? Great, that's fine. Keep giving me my iPhones. I've got my hand over my eyes. I don't care. Or are you going to go? Hey, listen. We don't believe in treating people like that. And if you guys are going to continue to do so, there are going to be problems. We are We are either going to stop buying your stuff. We're going to slap tariffs on it. We are going to. Uh, uh, do whatever we need to do economically to use the carrot and the stick to make you behave in a way that's more in line with our values if you have our money. Now, the trick is it's very, very difficult, as they were saying, and Joe Biden made this point last night in the debate. It's very, very difficult to do that alone. 
as a single country. What we have historically been able to do in these situations is get a coalition together. We get us, we get England, we get France, we get all these other countries, and we, we get Australia, and we as a group say, hey, China, hey, Japan, hey, whoever, stop doing X that you're doing, yeah. or you will pay an international financial Price. and trade yeah. penalty. Well, right now, we're kind of, you know, thanks to our chief executive, we're kind of out there riding a horse alone. We're the Michael Phelps of countries. In, a, in a way. A single participant. In a sport. way. And, and in, so in no groups. There is a limited amount of power you can wield that way. Yeah. It, since I met you, I've got interested in politics. Oh, I, that's I, a compliment. Thank you. You're most welcome. You're some of the the people you hang out with the most and I want to be more like you so I keep asking you back man um god okay flattery got me off track here I don't know what I'm talking about but as I come across more and more political interest and start reading and paying attention and it's difficult people it you can't just avoid politics and you you either can put your head in the sand and keep sourcing it the wrong way or, or getting your gas here or your iPhone there. Um, but I, as I age, I want to become a more complete, wholesome person. And these things matter to me, you know, who, who makes these decisions and where I get my things. And I, I look at the Chinese leader and I look at our leader and they seem pretty cordial, you know. But I also was wondering if you think they're both racist. And I want to say that because I look at Trump with immigration and stuff. He is not, doesn't really have a problem with white immigrants. Yeah, Tom Steyer said that last night. Yeah. And he yeah. seems to have a big problem with people of color that are immigrants. Do you think that he has a bias just like the Chinese leader has a bias against Muslims? So this kind of goes back to what I was saying before about Brexit and the Luddites and what's going on in Hungary, things like that. I don't know if Donald Trump himself does, but the people that he wants to keep on his side as his base, again, they're frightened and they're scared. They're looking around and they're going, why don't I have my job anymore? Well, do you think Russia's scared of Trump? I don't. Oh, God, no. No, I'm talking about the, the, the workers in uh, – the, the folks that he won, the folks who voted for Obama in the, in the election before last and then turned around and voted for Trump. They're scared because the world isn't what it used to be. They can't feed their entire family on one job anymore. The factories in town are closing down. Agriculture is going away. Self-driving cars are going to take bus drivers and cab drivers and truck drivers off the road. We're going through a massive change in this country. And one of the things that people do really quick when, they, when the situation feels out of control is they look for somebody to blame. We've seen it all throughout history. It's you know, easier to criticize than it's compliment. Easy. In, with, with Spain in, in 1492, as, as they were losing all that land back to the Muslims in, in, uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, what was going on geographically there, it was Jews with the Inquisition. In uh, the Weimar Republic with the rise of – and then Hitler comes along and Germany, Germans are starving in the street. Oh, guess what? It's Jews again. Okay. Do you in, think it's more religious-based or race-based? 
Well, the, with the Jewish population, it's interesting because that's that's a, a religion and it's kind of a race and it's kind of a culture. So they sort of check all those boxes. Um, check, check. With uh, with the French uh, in, in 1789, with with the Russians in 1917, even with with the Romans, was as the the empire started to to deconstruct there. Scapegoating is a big deal. Look at look at what we did uh, with with uh, uh, homosexuals during the AIDS crisis in this country. Um, look at what the Greeks did with the philosophers and Socrates as after they lost the Peloponnesian War. When things are going to crap, one of the quick things that everybody wants to do is look around for somebody to blame. And the easiest person to blame is somebody who doesn't look like you, somebody who speaks a different language from you, somebody who comes from somewhere else, and especially somebody who does not have the social and political power to speak up for themselves. And so when you start seeing people scapegoating, especially scapegoating minorities, immigrants, uh, then you know that generally things are, are, are on a really bad track. And, and I think when we look at what we're doing with uh, uh, immigrants at our southern border. I mean, Andrew Yang said it, said it very well. He says, go into that factory where you lost your job. You're not seeing wall-to-wall immigrants. You're seeing wall-to-wall robots and machines. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're scapegoating immigrants, especially immigrants coming up from our southern border, uh, for something that they have nothing to do with and is not their fault. Right. And, oh, gosh, we can talk all day about this. But, yeah. you know, hey, Mexico, you're welcome. Come back. <laughs> You're okay with me. Well, and we just signed uh, a couple days ago. We just signed sort of a new NAFTA that's going to uh, change the trade and tariff agreements between Mexico, the United States, and Canada, and hopefully make things a little bit more equitable uh, all the way around. Bernie had a lot to say about that last night, as a matter of fact. Yeah. I'm sorry we're stalling to get to the debate here, but that's quite all right. I got a couple other things I no, want to jump do, out do, here. This is your show, wherever you want to go. Impeachment. Uh, ah, impeachment. This. You know, I've been texting you like crazy, mm-hmm. by the way, between the impeachment trials and the debate. And there was a lot of words that was stunning, but it just came down to tricks and games for me and frustration. It's a lot of those. Um, when they were saying, uh, I moved to strike the last word so they could get more Right, so you can extend time. the debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the constant... Um, what do they call it? Defer my time back? I yield my time back. I yield my right. time. And then I'll give you 30 seconds, Joel. i give you 20 seconds, Joel. Right. And stuff like that. And it was just back and forth. And it was like a boxing match of jabs that was just one little jab, come back another jab. It went Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. With and, everyone already, by the way, before any of that started, knowing exactly how they were going to vote. None right. of that was yeah. changing anyone's mind. It and, was it was a show for the public on TV. And they were every looking, congressman knew how they were going to vote. They were looking for sound bites. Yes, show Big the people time. back home where I'm weighing in. Yeah, you know, Ohio show, says show my Nebraska face. Says. You know that I'm 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 out here doing what they want them to do. Or you notice one of the first people uh, up on the pro impeachment side was Pramila. Jaya Paul from yeah. Seattle, you know, again, ass. showing the people back home. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm up here doing what you what you want. That's that's key. Um, yeah. The idea with impeachment, remember, is as soon as they open debate, it's a six hour time limit. Mm. So if everything's going to be fair, three hours per side. 
right? Why and so they go like 24 hours. I felt like I was watching. Well, because it not constantly. all of that was debate. Some of that was was process about how you're going to do the debate. But then you have uh, Jerry Nadler and Doug Collins, the two, because um, uh, the the impeachment was being presented by the Judicial Committee. So you've got the majority chair, the Democratic chair of that, and the Republican chair of that um, uh, of the Judicial Committee. So they're the two sort of quarterbacks. For their team. And they are in charge of speaker order, who's going to get recognized. Um, and most importantly, they're in charge of time because you got to make sure out of that six hours, I get all three of mine. And I'd preferably I'd really like it to work out so that I get the last. And it seemed like they were making deals like, hey, Joel, I'm going to give you extra 30 seconds because what you wrote is a little bit better than what I wrote. Well, there's some of that. And and the, the other issue also is um, – you you want to make sure there's there's been some some game planning beforehand. Okay, in this next section, you know, it's in this next forty five minute section, I want everybody from our side who's getting up. I want everybody to talk about the fact that uh, there's only eight lines in a phone call. This is just about eight lines. I want to hear those words over and over and over again. Okay, on our side, I want everybody who gets up over the next 30 minutes, uh, the name of the game is No One is Above the Law. I need everybody to end their speech with the words, No One is Above the Law, not even the President. It's such a game. it's, It's engineered. It's such a game, though. I mean, it's the same people saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over. And it's nobody saying that, hey, this is illegal because of this you know, I, I'm, or I, this is not illegal because of X, Y, Z. It is just talking points that they keep flipping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, knowing that the party's going to vote with their party 100%. And now it goes, was that the Senate vote? So, the, so now Nancy Senate. Pelosi gets to decide when to officially send the impeachment over to the Senate for so trial that, for that, removal from office. That was House, and now Senate has more now, Republicans. Sen- now, well, here's the thing. So Senate, this, this is where it's going to get fascinating. What you would think would happen is the House would, would pass, would, would impeach, and then immediately send that over to the Senate so they could take up with a trial with the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presiding. But I as think was Nancy done. has a couple more cards in her deck. So what Nancy's doing, she's just holding it. And, and you can say she's holding it because nobody's going to pay attention to it over the holidays and she wants it to, to be uh, – you, you can say she's holding it because she wants to wait till we get closer to the election and have the news cycle be all about removal from office, removal from office, removal. You can say she's holding it because she's going to hold it until uh, the Republicans allow them to call witnesses from Trump staff. Who knows? But she's putting it in her pocket until she feels like it's ready. And by the way – when you've got Mitch McConnell saying, saying out loud to people, I am not an impartial juror. This is not a jury, a, a legal, pro- an impartial legal process. This is a political process. And I'm basically going to smother this thing with a pillow as fast as I can. It's hard to blame her. How does, I, you know, I, I was living in Kentucky when Mitch went into office. Really? I did not know that. Wow, And I was so surprised coming from Seattle to Kentucky. I was watching his campaign and ads because he was in my town. And I was just like, and this is a long time ago. This is 16 years ago or something like that. I'm like, this old man. Yeah, That's what I thought of him too. Old man has no chance of winning. And then I realized I was in a red state. And then he got about 98% of the vote. And I was 
Lord. She, he's got a serious challenger coming up this time that's going to be very interesting. Yeah. She's a naval pilot. She's she's pretty pro-gun. She's going to appeal to centrists, uh, a younger, charismatic. I, I think he might have a tougher road to hoe this time. Yep. Plus, the Democrats have done a very good job, I think, pinning yeah. to him the reason. How many times did you hear said during the debates, during the six hours of the debate, or during last night's debate, too, how many bills the House has passed that are sitting on his desk? Something like 250 pieces of legislation. I mean, just 400. Uh, is it 400 pieces this last this whole Congress? Yeah. If they're not are, doing your job, what are you there for? They're just, just he, he has he has decided his job is obstruction. His job is to just make sure we hold the line. Nothing passes out of this Congress until uh, Republicans take command of the House again. That's yeah, his job. He's drinking that con- good Kentucky moonshine, brother. <laughs> I got a nickname for him, but I won't. Oh, okay. I'm trying to be impartial here. Be, be impartial. As much as possible. Hey, so last night. Last night. My son and my wife sat on the couch and watched about 30 minutes of okay. the end of the debate. And I couldn't believe it. My but, poor people watched all three hours. <laughs> my kids were like, Dad, nice. why are we watching this? <laughs> um, it was definitely not their choice. They're ah, okay. deep into a show called Riverdale. Oh, my God. So is mine. Yeah. No, did Jughead did, did dead? I don't know. I don't watch that shit. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't watch it either. But my, it's what my my daughter can talk. So about. it's loosely based on the Archie, Archie Comics yeah. Digest, which I used to read as a kid. So there's Archie, Betty, Veronica, oh all of Josie and the Pussycats, yeah. and Jughead. But it's kind of like it meets strange. Oh, it's a soap opera. Meets yeah. meets yeah. Kelly Ripa's husband's in it. Yeah. Um, it kind of meets Stranger Things versus a soap opera meets Ozark and it misses all the marks for me and they are just fascinated by that show but um, he had finished his homework I had told you I had to pause the debate we couldn't talk over text anymore um, because I had to make dinner and um, then dinner was over and they're like Riverdale and I'm like no you know I'm watching this debate the rest of the way and it was unique to see somebody who doesn't watch the debate how what they thought of the performance. Mm. So listen to a 12-year-old kid, you know, um, I'm a Yang Gang guy, you know, among others. You know, there's a lot of people out there that I like, but uh, I really like Andrew Yang and what he has to say. And my son had some criticism of him last night. Um, and I was just like, wow. See, that's interesting. I had a, I thought Andrew did really, really well yeah. last night. What was what was his what was his problem? Yeah, I wish I, I, wish I could remember, but he articulated Pretty well, not enough, so I can remember it today. Still got the the lowest speaking time of anybody. So the way yeah. the way last night, but it was still so much better. Having seven people on the stage for three hours, awesome. so much better. How so, can how can you not fit seven people on the screen though? There was a time where there was that's true five in there, and he was cut off again. Okay, okay. First of all, before we go any farther, I gotta say PBS, come on, man. Like compared to all the other debates that were run by like. NBC and CBS and CNN, was the, worst. The, the technical just bush leagueness of the PBS one last night just drove me crazy. Sometimes would have been the best. It was I NPR mean, and P- PBS. It, it but looked then like it was, it was on being, CNN. I mean, the, the the perfect metaphor. What was it? Was the first time they cut back to the reporters when they took the break to do some uh, to to do some post game, and the lights weren't on. 
They were in the dark, and these reporters sat there for 15 seconds talking in the dark, and then they threw the lights on. I mean, Andrew's mic was all tinny and messed up. Bernie's had something wrong with the compression or the limiting to where he was always – he was sounding like Janis Joplin just blowing it out. I mean, everything technical – about it looked like it was it was being run by uh, a, a bunch by of me. kids from the local technical <laughs> college who were doing everything for the first time. It's like, come on, guys, this is basic, basic production values. Now, that said, when you look at the speaking breakdown, very interesting. Biden, not at the top. Not one, two, three, or four. That's down, why he showed down in so the middle because well, he didn't talk. Down in the middle. So you had Bernie, Buttigieg, uh, Warren, uh, and those those guys hanging up and uh, at about the twenty minute mark. Then you had Biden checking in at about fifteen. Uh, oh, by the way, Klobuchar also at about the twenty minute mark. And then you had Steyer and Andrew both checking in around eleven minutes. Yeah, and they were so, both on the ends. Very different. Very different. It's interesting. And remember, we've we've talked about this before. How do you get more speaking time? It's when people call your name. Mm-hmm. When somebody else references you. And so the fact that Biden not getting more speaking time. They're not referencing him, him as much, so That's he's not getting he's answers. He's the leader in he's, the polls. But he's not. That's the thing. If you look at Iowa, remember, okay, guys, we've, we've talked about this before. Let's, let's go back to, to our civics. Don't get caught up in national polling. Yes, Biden is leading in national polling. We don't elect the president nationally. We elect the president state by state. Electoral college. We can talk about whether it's right or wrong. We can talk about how we got here and why it's good or bad, but it ain't going anywhere. It's not changing. And those are the rules that everybody agreed to before we started. So what does that mean? Look at who's leading in the individual states. And in the individual states, in Iowa, who's the man? Pete. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and Elizabeth Warren to a degree. In New Hampshire, who, who is it? Bernie and Pete. So, so the, the, and they can read polls as well as anybody. So they knew that Pete's the guy. Come after, come after Pete. Yeah, they Go after Elizabeth bit. Warren, which they did. See if he can deal with his moment in the hot seat. Elizabeth Warren specifically came after him. And, you know, he and, and she got into a, a big one on wine caves and donors and things like that. Because Oh, my God. I love the wine caves argument. The wine caves argument. That was something else. That's got to be a t-shirt. Have you seen the pictures, though? No. I mean – if you've seen the pictures of this, it does. I mean, it is incredibly opulent. It is. It is like something out of 1789 Versailles before they dragged Louis and Marie out into the town square. I mean, it, the opulence of it is just incredible. But the but the the core question is a good one, which is, if you take money from someone, when they come back, let's say you get elected, when they come back to you and say, "Hey, I gave you money. Now you owe me." Fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. An ambassadorship. Uh, my friend who's a lawyer making good justice. You know, whatever. Yeah. Am I going to trade favors for that? And Pete had an interesting answer. He said, first of all, I'm, I'm the only person up on this stage who's not a millionaire, millionaire or a billionaire, billionaire. So I don't get to be up here if I don't take donors from anybody who'll give me. But also, if you can't look at somebody who has given you something and then say no, you have no business in politics. You've got to be able to tell people no. And just because you take a donation from someone does not mean that when they come back to you, you're automatically going to say, okay, yes, you are now ambassador to Tahiti. No, that, that's not how it automatically has to work. Personally, from somebody that's been to Tahiti, you don't want to be the ambassador. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was a marvelous place. No, there's, it's, it's horrible. Oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it, it has nice brochures, yeah. for sure, and it's halfway to New Zealand. Um 
but we we stopped on the way to New Zealand, and there was like three or four hotels on the waterfront. Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We check in; it's a real nice place. Find out that the people can work at that hotel. There's a McDonald's next to the four um, hotels there, yeah. and uh, you can work at the hotel or McDonald's. Those are basically the two jobs. And if you work there all day, you could not afford a Big Mac at the end of the day. And then there's all these feral cats and dogs and geckos at your well, dining it's like, table. It's like Jamaica and Bermuda and places like that. Like, it's wonderful as long as you keep looking out at the ocean. So we went to and got a four-wheeler and went ecotourism Uh-oh. to the middle of the island. Yeah. Different world, bro. I betcha. Different world. I betcha. Yeah. Not going back. Wow. Not going back. We're just going to leave it at that. Wow. Um, Pete. I felt like he was the one guy on stage last night that both won and lost. Hmm. Interesting. Um, there's winners and losers, and uh, I think he was both. And why I say that is he came out very stiff and um, seemed to, at times, be speaking off a script as opposed to That's the criticism speaking of him, off yeah. Off the top of his head, he can like feel some, can some other people. Yeah, yeah. So he seemed very much like that AI robot yeah. politician at times. But then there was times like when Elizabeth came after him about the wine cave. He handled himself. Hell yeah, very very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's tough because you have to strike this balance, right? You you don't want to be unprepared. Look, and by the way, at this point, let's pour one out for Beto. Uh, and and Kamala no longer with us, uh, various people that we've lost along the way. And I think that that we lost Marianne them along the way. Is Marianne, is she officially out now? I don't know. Come if on, she's, she's out. Well, I mean, she's sort of out, but is, is she? Schultz. Um, Steve Bullock. Um, and one of Delaney. the reasons that I think some of those people are out is a, is a thing that, that nobody's talking about really much, which is, which is labor shortage. Um, there is a finite number of people walking the planet that knows how to manage and work in and run a campaign for president. There are very few people who know how to uh, schedule a candidate, uh, work fundraising, uh, marshal volunteers and work with them, manage a candidate's calendar, uh, work with the media and work with reporters. And with a field this gigantic, this unprecedentedly huge, what did we have, 25 at some point? I think or, the or high, 20, high number was 27. 15. Now we're at seven. When you have all these different candidates, that labor pool of people who know what they're doing and probably fewer of them who are even good at it. Mm-hmm. Get spread really thin. Well, look at Jay Inslee. He was doing a great job and polled at zero. Well, and and you know Beto. I mean, there were just times that it was very clear he was taking questions from the media. He had not been prepped for. Mm-hmm. He didn't have an answer on. Uh, Kamala, that that letter that got published from one of her staffers. That's one of the most damning things I've ever seen. I've never seen. I've worked for presidential campaigns before, and I've never seen staffers treated this way. Blah yeah. blah blah. That tells me you didn't hire middle management well. And so as, as you've got so many candidates, they're being staffed not necessarily by, by the best and the brightest people. Look, take a look at Tom Steyer, right? And Tom Steyer, some of his stuff he, he has for his message is really cool in terms of some things like term limits. Uh, but he's got to be banging his head on the table. I mean, this is a guy who has laid out one of the largest mass media buys in history mm-hmm. in terms of dollar value. And he can't move the polls. He right. barely, barely you. made it onto the stage last night. And he's probably not going to make it into the next one. So it's just, I guess, money money can't buy everything. 
Right. You know, look at we'll, we'll look at what Bloomberg is doing now. He had higher name recognition starting out. Well, he's also trying not he's not trying to be on, the and he's not trying to do the first three states. Um, but to to spend that kind of money, and it's just not working for you. You know, it's it's got to make you scratch your head. Well, I know that you on on was it Monday night? I think. Uh, you spent Tuesday. you yeah. spent some time with the candidate who didn't make the stage last night either in terms of Cory Booker, who had to, along with Kamala, be banging their heads on the table and going, holy crap, I'm black. How is Joe Biden? How is this walking malapropism beating me among black likely voters in South Carolina by 15 points? Mm-hmm. Or Kamala going, I'm Californian. How is Joe Biden, this guy who's talking about we need to gather all our family around the record player and that's what education needs. Uh, how is this guy beating me amongst California likely voters by 17 points? How is it happening? There's, there's, sometimes it feels like there's no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah, two, two points. When it comes to Bloomberg and Steyer and, and, and my son, he, he recognized Steyer. And I was kind of surprised that Steyer made the debate, um, you know, in the 12th hour or whatever. Yeah, just made it, yeah. And uh, Vinny had seen commercials. Right. And my mom had seen Bloomberg commercials. So my son, by default of TV, I like that guy. My mom, default of TV, I like that guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not hearing him talk about any topic, really, other than the things that they've done. Steyer was smart, and he didn't spend all his money on TV ads. You know what he bought a ton of? YouTube ads. And he was he he bit the bullet and he spent the big money for the kinds you can't skip through. Mm. The problem was there's a point where that can backfire. You know, when he first did his big ad drop, there were people who were talking because you know how YouTube is. You you'll wake up on a Saturday morning and it's raining and you'll stay in bed and you'll watch, you know, YouTube. You'll just go down a, a hole and you'll watch a bunch. This video leads to that one, leads to that one. There were people who were reporting over the course of an hour of YouTube watching, getting 17 Tom Steyer videos that you could not skip through. Wow. Now, that's enough to make you start hating somebody. you got to be careful. There is an oversaturation point. Yeah, Wheeler Walker Jr., he um, couldn't make it in country music, and uh, he decided to get rid of his record company and his agent and stuff like that mm-hmm. and make his own album Okay, yeah. and then oh. sell it on the porn sites. I I did not know you could do that. And he sold millions of records out of the trunk of his car just by getting those pop-up ads. Wow. That gives pop-up ads a whole new meaning. (laughs) Um, But, but yeah, I mean, we'll watch Sunday. Okay, watch the Seahawk game. Okay, watch out for the Arizona Cardinals. Can give them trouble. Bloomberg did his heavy buying uh, during NFL. Mm-hmm. You're going to see a lot more Bloomberg. You saw a lot last Sunday. You're going to see a lot more, a lot of Bloomberg ads well, during and, football. And Pete, he spent a ton of money on offices in Iowa, like 47 offices. So that's the difference. And then there's people like Corey and, and Castro that have three. Right. So what Pete's strategy is, he is the he and Bloomberg are the opposite of each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So Bloomberg spending has dropped a ton of money on spending a ton and doing a blanket national campaign to try to raise his name recognition outside of New York and outside of the East Coast in the tri-state area. Pete is doing the, because he's betting that basically he can withstand those first few states. And then when you get to Super Tuesday, everybody's going to know who he is and he'll do well. Pete is doing exactly the opposite. He's hitting really hard those early states, Nevada, Iowa, New Hampshire, trying in South Carolina, yeah, not gaining a lot of track, not getting a lot of traction, with the idea that he can deliver the clubber lang knockout punch early, 
and get other people to to drop out early and then have a, a bigger path. So he is much more um, – if I were going to use a crude firearms analogy, I would say Michael Bloomberg is shotgunning and Pete is sniper mm. rifle. Two, two things. Clubber Lang is Mr. T, Mr. and T? that's a reference to one of the Rocky movies for you young folks. Rocky 3. And get you ain't out, so bad. You ain't so bad. Get out there and vote. And talk about shotguns and buckshot. Have you seen Kristen Bale as Dick Cheney in that movie? I have not. And Steve Carroll's in it? Wow. So I love Bale. He's really good. Cheney um, was a CEO of a basically, I want to say, a gun manufacturing company or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then he parlayed that into becoming the vice president and then getting a $200 million uh, defense contract. Halliburton, right. Halliburton, that's it. That's it. Halliburton. You got to watch that movie. Okay. You can't take your eyes off it. It's so good. But, you know, it, it, it makes me think, you know, and I've always thought this, that politics are very corrupt and a bit devilish and Cheney, you know, had to leave the company, but then went back to the company afterwards or whatever. But did it perpetuate his situation into politics? And then did he benefit from politics and that defense contract? Was that the plan the whole time was to continue to sell more weapons with his company? And that's how he got in position. Did he give money to the campaign? And then did he get that kickback of not an ambassador, but an actual vice presidency? Well, and that's what Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren's argument is right now, right? Is before you can do any of these other things that anybody wants to talk about, climate, healthcare, anything, you have to deal with the corruption and the money in politics. Because if mm-hmm. you are going to make it this expensive to run for and get political office, you are setting it up to – be owned by corporations because rich people and corporations are the only people who can afford to fund a campaign. So then if, if you're going to make it this expensive to run for and get office, you don't get to be shocked and sad when the guy who runs Halliburton gets an office and then favors Halliburton because that's who can afford to run. You don't get to be shocked and sad when Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg start buying massive media drops and getting their way onto the debate stage because we as a society have made it so expensive to run for and get office, we can't then turn around and be shocked and sad that that's who gets office. Yeah. I am shocked and sad at times, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's go over some of the, these guys' performance and ladies. Um, well, f- just off the top of your head, who won the debate? So it's really interesting. I thought, because I, I was sitting there last night with you know the fam, and we were, we were gathered around watching, watching the TV, had a nice little fire in the fireplace as the rain just pounded down. Um, and I was, I think I texted you. I felt like Bernie had as good a night last night yeah, as, I, did as I've ever seen him have. However, I don't know that it helped because here's the thing. Here's where, where all the candidates are right now. They've all got their base, right? Bernie has his base of people, generally 18 to 35 males who love him. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has her base of people who, who love her and are going to vote for her. Same with Pete, same with Yang Gang, everybody. What you got to do now, we're about six weeks away from the first voting in Iowa. What you have to do now is expand your base because nobody's base is going to get it by themselves. I would say that's my criticism of him. Yeah, he and knows. so, right. He we got to get money out of politics. He kept, he kept saying, it's, you know what it's like? It's like taking somebody that you love to a concert of your favorite band and they just play their greatest hits. And you love it. And you know them because you know all those hits and everything. But for somebody who's not a 
tried and true died and low follower, they're sort of sitting there going, okay, I'm waiting for a song that talks to me, you know, and that's what Bernie's got. He's doing right now. He's really good. He was energetic. He was focused. Uh, he was rhetorically very strong last night, but he was playing his greatest hits. Everything was, you know, corporations and the top three people own more than the bottom half. And, and that's it. And everybody else is okay, Bernie. You got to expand the base. Yeah, it's too repetitive. You got to talk to some to some people who haven't already decided they love you. And he's hauling oats up there, you know, doing Rich Girl, you know, and and that's that's you know, it's he's ironic playing the greatest hits. Didn't one of Holland Oats guys go bankrupt recently? Oh, both. Well, not recently, but both of them have had big time financial troubles. They were such a good group. They were great. That's my favorite band from the eighties. And Bernie's up there, you know, you're a rich girl, but you've gone too far. Because you know you got more than the bottom half. Nice. You can say money, money is the big problem. That's the big problem. Dun, 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 dun. He's got to go outside the greatest hits. I feel like I've gone off the rails here. But in the same way, right, Elizabeth's got to do the same thing. Yeah. She's got her base. And and then she's got – and so you got to figure out, so where are you going to go outside your base? The, the healthcare thing with her is what's stumbling me right now. And I thought Yang had a good retort towards her healthcare – plans as well so this is why she and pete were attacking each other so much is because they both now they have that same problem too they've got their base who love them and now they've got to go outside their base so if you're if you're the candidate you got to figure okay where is where is there room to grow where can i go outside the base it's either from somebody who hasn't decided who their people are yet which there ain't many of those or it's from somebody else's voters who are kind of wavering And a fascinating poll came out a couple of weeks ago. They asked a lot of likely voters. And remember, you always want to pull likely voters. Don't pull registered voters. Pull likely voters. The people are going to vote. How how can you tell who's You ask them. Did they – do you plan – some people will be very honest. They'll say, no, I'm not planning on voting in the upcoming election. Okay. No, I I don't vote. A big chunk of people will will just tell you. Um, Uh, My vote doesn't count. Yeah, whatever. And and so they asked people what their second choices were. If you can't have your first choice, who's your second choice? And it was fascinating that the Venn diagram of Pete and Elizabeth is almost a circle. If, if you're an Elizabeth Warren voter yeah, and you yeah, don't yeah. get Elizabeth, your second choice is very heavily Pete. Did in you the, send me that article? I don't know. I think I did. Um, did and then if Pete is, is your person, your second choice is Elizabeth. So what that's telling – see, I'm, I'm just some debate coach schlub from Washington, and I can read that and know what it means. They're staffers who are professionals at this, are reading that and know it means that's where the voters are. That's where we can peel off. If we're Elizabeth Warren people, we can peel off some Pete's. Because that kind of splits the vote and doesn't... Because we're, we're appealing neither to the candidate. same people. Yeah. You know, they, they, like, they both like what we're saying. So if I'm, a, if, if I'm a Pete Buttigieg manager, I'm saying Elizabeth Warren is where we can peel off some people. So, of course, they're going to come at each other hard. I was expecting that last night. And sure enough, they did. Um, yeah, it's tough. The, the difficulty is for people who don't really have a base yet, like a Tom Steyer or an Amy Klobuchar, they don't really have like a, a demographic of people that really goes into them. It's kind of all across the board and that's good, but it also doesn't give you a base to grow on. Right. So who won? Bernie had a, (laughs) Bernie had a great night. Pete had a great night. Who won? Oh, God damn it. Um, (laughs) 
Who won? Joe didn't screw himself up too bad. Who though. won? Oh, can Joe, can we, can, can we stop here and say, Joe, don't imitate a stuttering kid on national TV. What synapses are firing in your brain at that moment that thinks, even if you're doing it kindly, that imitating a stuttering kid on a nationally televised presidential debate is a good thing to do? Why do it? Just why do it? Even if it makes the point you want to make. Um, uh, if if you if you're gonna Joe lost, <laughs> I, I would argue he didn't hurt himself anymore. That's the thing. He didn't hurt himself anymore, which is which is decent. I'm gonna give it to Pete last night narrowly, mm. just because I think he did the most of what he needed to do, which is potentially give people who are on the fence about him more reasons to get positive about him. Um, uh, I also think Yang had a really good night. Uh, in in terms of letting people know what he's about, and you gotta love it. He, I, I would argue, he of all the seven people on that stage knows who he is. Yeah, he's a little bit more human, the most the strongly, and he's willing to be funny, and he's willing to because he knows he Fallible. can't play their game. Yeah, if if he plays the politician game and the carefully focus tested game, he's gonna lose. So why not be himself? Right. And and you gotta respect that. That that cl- closing question is so lame. Who if would you he, want to give a gift to versus who would you ask forgiveness of? What kind of a question is that? I don't Oh, So he laughed at that question. And then I forget who it was. I think it was Elizabeth that kind of was like, yeah, that's a dumb question. She didn't say that outright. But uh, but look she, at what he was able to do with it. See, this was so savvy. He said, I'd like to thank Elizabeth because she's let me know and she's talked about recently that she's been doing what? Reading my book. Reading his book. Bernie had a good rebuttal too, because Yang said, "I've written well, I four guess, books. I guess I'll give everyone on stage my book." And then Bernie is like, "I could give all of you guys all four of the books I wrote, but what I want." But look at what Yang is. Doing. First of all, let's let's give Andrew Yang props for a second. He came from zero. He came from being one of the top seven who's left on that stage last night. He can he got there from zero. Nobody knew who he was, or very few people had knew who he was at all. Okay, he has come from there to here. And also, what did he consistently? say i want to either be the nominee or i want whoever is the nominee to sound a lot like me when this is over i want them to care about the issues i care about into the things elizabeth warren who stands a very good chance of being the nominee is reading his book tulsi gabbard is talking about wanting to look seriously at a ubi cory booker has been talking about how some of the things he says make sense everybody even if he loses I would argue he has accomplished some of the things he set out to do, and he got there from Zippo, Zilcho, Zero, Nada, Nadie, Niet. <laughs> so when I was hanging out with uh, Cory Booker on Monday or Tuesday, he— Just a little name drop there. When Cory and I were hanging, you know— when Well, we, I was literally hanging I saw on his right shoulder a tall dude. for— uh, Oh, it's funny, too. But before, before I tell the joke here, um, he made— mention of yang and he's like andrew's my friend and then last night andrew said hey i think Corey will be back give a shout out to the guy and and he very well could be and that's um, nice yeah it's it depends on it's all up to tom perez the dnc chairman now because what he could do he's got a big choice now he could choose for the january debates to raise the polling threshold yet again please don't or he could do what they did between the October and November debates and keep them the same and just give you another 30 days to get there. And I think if he – well, but I can't – who knows? If he does, Corey still might not make it. I mean, Corey's – Corey feels like he's going to be there. Though. I'm sure you you really got to feel like you're making it. You got to feel like – because otherwise quit. But these polling thresholds, they're not that high. 
And, and if you can't get them, again, we're six weeks away from Iowa. And if you couldn't, if you can't raise the polling to get on that stage last night, mm-hmm. you are not at the point where you will get a single delegate in Iowa. I think I texted you. Uh, ben Carson in 2016. Mm-hmm. Every, anybody remember Ben Carson ran for yeah. president? Ben Carson was the lowest person who got a delegate in the Republican field in 2016 in Iowa. And he did. He needed 9.3% to get a single delegate. So if you're not polling five, six right now. Yeah, and that's, I, that's right where Yang is. It's going to be nothing for you in Iowa. Yeah. Well, Corey spent the last week in Iowa. And I, I hope. Came to Seattle and then shot down to Las Vegas after that. Mm, yeah, uh, I hope it so works. He's making the rounds. He he was an incredible person. I, you know, I'd liked him ever since the you're drinking the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the yeah. flavor, Joe. I watched the speech that you streamed. It was, it was really nice. You streamed it. You went live, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched that. That's because the Oxbox didn't work. Oh. So nobody got audio but me and uh, this one kid reporter from KUOW, he had his phone next to the speaker in the back. Oh. But then he just wrote a piece on it. So I think uh, I'm the only guy that has that speech. There you go. Well done. Yeah. Kind of exciting. Scoop, I mean, it's much better than scooping. Uh, Howard Schultz and Dow Constantine, where I didn't push record. Uh, but it's, it's kind of cool ever since I met you. I've hung out with Howard Schultz, Andrew Yang, and now Cory Booker. And. Getting press passes here and there and being recognized by a national syndication uh, periodical. So it's starting to move. And I think I himself, Kingmaker. No, I want to give you massive, <laughs> massive credit to making me a person that cares about politics and is slightly informed more so than the next guy. Um, back to um, the debate, I want to say that I thought Amy Klobuchar won. Good night. Good night. She was strong. She was adamant. She didn't back down. She was disarming with her smile. Um, she made a lot of good points. She has a track record of just kicking ass. And she's at her best when she plays to that, when she talks about her track record, when she shows that she has an in-depth knowledge of how the American civic process works. She is at her worst when she's trying for the quick pun or the easy soundbite or the joke. You know, there's a, I haven't been in a wine cave. I was in a wind cave, which is a joke that people in the Midwest get. Yeah. And it's like, stop, please, don't don't sell yourself short. I know you feel like you've got to get the joke. See, this is where Kamala Harris got fell down too. Don't feel like people just want the soundbite. Display to us that you are incredibly well prepared for this and incredibly which she is and incredibly educated and ready to rock and roll with this job on the on the first day. Mm-hmm. Don't sell yourself short that ever that you're trying to get like the cute pun or the cute joke. That's when I think she fell down a little bit and I think there were some moments when she was at her best when she showed that she was just as qualified as anybody else up there for day one of an administration. Yeah, I, I, I feel strongly that she could handle the job. For sure. She's not my first choice, but I I don't think she'd do a bad job. Um, she made mention of Stacey Abrams, which I had mm-hmm. opportunity to record a podcast with her at Seattle mm-hmm. Town Hall earlier. Stacey Abrams speaks very, very well, and I like that she tied her in. And, you know, calling out the president and said, either keep your promise or keep your threat. Right. Don't yeah. be in, in between. She's one of those people who Iowa's going to be everything for her because she's staking everything on her Midwestern cred and her Midwestern roots. And if she can, I think she can hang in fundraising wise through Iowa. I don't yeah, think she's going to. I don't know where she's getting her money now, but she hasn't missed the, a debate. In the last six weeks. But 
if she doesn't do well in Iowa, then it goes to places where she's going to have a real hard time, like New Hampshire and South Carolina. And so she's banking on a home run. She's got to park it deep in the cheap seats it's in so Iowa. So amazing that and these if she small little states have so much influence on the election. These small, and let's let's be honest. These small until we get to South Carolina. These small little white states, white, and these small little old states. You know, they did a they did a fascinating. The the Des Moines Register just did a. A, a, a demographic poll in Iowa, a gigantic chunk of the Iowan likely votership, remember likely, not registered likely, is 55 and over. And a gigantic chunk of that chunk is 65 and over. So, I mean, Iowa's old. Um, let me ask you this, because, you know, there was rock the vote, get out the vote, all these movements in the past to get youth to vote. And, and what the hell's happening? I don't feel like... It's not the, new. The 18 to 35 vote has never. I don't think it's there. I don't hear them yeah, talking. They don't. You know, and they, some of that has been because in the past, uh, when you go off to college, you don't get to devote at home or you can't vote where you are in school. There, There's just getting registered. There's there's all these things. It's uh, it's a very willful process. You, you heard Amy Klobuchar talk last night about her plan is as soon as you turn 18 – you get registered to vote automatically, and that would change things up. Look, if every 18 to 30-year-old person in this country voted, our government would change overnight. It would be a revolution, but it, it's, it hasn't happened. And I used to tell my students all the time on the debate team and other places, you get ignored as a demographic because you let them ignore you. Mm-hmm. If, if you continue not to vote, you don't get to complain that they don't care about your issues. But here's the fascinating thing about that Des Moines Register st- uh, uh, poll. We have it in our brain that old vo- old candidates are going to vote for older – excuse me, that old voters are going to vote for old candidates and young voters are going to vote for young candidates. And not only is that not necessarily so, it's almost exactly the opposite. For instance, so the Des Moines Register is polling senior citizens in Iowa, and they ask first question, do you believe that age discrimination exists? 55 and over, yes. 65 and over, hell. Yes, gigantic numbers. Then they ask, do you believe that you yourself have ever been a victim of age discrimination? 55 and over. Yes. 65 and over. Hell yes. So they're, they're throwing them softballs. Mm-hmm. But then they ask, in terms of the office of the presidency, do you believe that it is time for someone newer or younger to take the responsibilities of leadership? 55 and over. Yes. 65 and over. Hell Yes. So you see that we assume that older voters are going to vote for older candidates, and that, that's not necessarily so. Look at Bernie's voters. He does really, really well, 18 to 30, less so 30 to 40. And at 40 years old, his numbers go off a cliff. So he's doing really well with younger voters, even as the oldest guy in the primary. So why is that? And I believe it's because we look at the candidates and we see ourselves. We see our own foibles. Mm-hmm. A 65, 70-year-old person looks at Joe Biden, looks at Bernie Sanders, and they go, that's me. And I can't imagine myself being president. Are you kidding me, says a 65, 70-year-old person? I, I, I know myself, and if I hit the wrong button on the remote, if I hit input like at, by accident, that's a whole day. Right. That's a day gone. Now I'm calling up technicians. They got me behind the TV, plugging and unplugging things like an idiot. I don't know what's going on. Finally, I have to call my kids from across town. They bring my eight-year-old granddaughter over who goes, oh, it's just like right here, Grampy. Input. Boom. This is Sports Center. God damn it. That's, that's what they know. And you want to give me the nuclear codes? In the same way, <laughs> in the same way, younger voters 
look at at Pete Buttigieg or, or these young candidates and they go, that's me. I can't imagine myself being president. I'm still figuring out how to do laundry every week. I wish I could move back home and let my mom cook for me. I, 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 I'm still answering the phone in, a, in an assumed accent because I'm worried about my student loans. Joel, no esta aquí. Okay, I'm, and you want me to be president? You want me to manage the federal budget? There's no way. I want somebody older with wisdom who has been there, who's going to tell me everything's going to be okay. A nation of young people voted for Ronald Reagan. Let's let's not forget those those demographic numbers. So as a result, we have this this thing where we assume that older voters are going to vote for older candidates and younger voters are going to vote for younger candidates and black voters are going to vote for black candidates and white. And it ain't necessarily so. Wow. Take a (laughs) breath. Well, let me pay some bills right here. Pay them. Um, Support for the Bystander podcast comes from Manscaped who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Mm, Man's smooth. smooth. <laughs> it's good. I got a person in here while I'm reading this. I like this. We can go off the rails with this ad. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, Joel. <laughs> did not just say that. <laughs> Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TINY. That's 20% off plus free shipping at checkout when you use the code TINY at it's, Manscaped. It's kind of unfortunate. Okay. Yeah, you want to be smooth, man. There you go. Yeah. You know, and you know, if you got too much, you can all donate it to Locks of Love, right? After you manscaped. Wow. Then, then I didn't. I don't want to see the before on that picture. No, but uh, I have to show it to you. All right. Um, Steyer, he talked about climate and um, unionizing workers, yeah. and we don't yeah. talk about unions too much anymore. It's a old Jimmy Hoffa type thing. It's it's interesting. The, the Democratic voters last week, uh, I watched um, uh, all the candidates. I think they had eight eight of them, including Castro and Booker, uh, talk to the um, in Iowa, uh, the uh, uh, AFL CIO, the the unions and labor there, and talk about the importance of unions and where unions have gone, which is of course a a topic that is near and dear to our heart here in Boeing country. Warehouser, um, yeah, yeah, and Warehouser Union. Uh, I don't know that warehousers unionized. I know that the big the big giveaway that that Inslee was was to uh, was to to Boeing, and they ended up busting the union, um, which is too bad. They're various unions. They, Can you they, imagine they, Amazon with a union? They have they'll fight it tooth and nail. They'll never, 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 never. Um, but that's that's the the issue is is the American conservative movement has smartly and systematically over the last sixty years defanged labor and unions in this country. And the thing is, when you have that auto worker up in Wisconsin, up in Western Pennsylvania, up in, in Michigan, and they don't, and they're scared because they see, like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, they see their skill set going away. They see themselves not being as important and they don't believe like they have a strong union to defend their interests. That is a Trump voter waiting to happen. Because if your union's not going to tell you, I can protect you, I can save you, I can make sure you're going to have your pension and your health care, who is going to tell me that? Oh, wait, there's a guy at the microphone with kind of strange colored hair and a somewhat orange complexion. And wow, little hands, who is telling me (laughs) that he's going to protect my benefits and he's going to protect my pension. I'm scared. I'll listen to him. So when you take unions out of the equation, those workers that were defended by unions are Trump voters waiting to happen. And that's what he did. I like how he's called it a light impeachment. And I was like, yeah, light impeachment. We only need to get rid of 259 pounds of dead weight. Oh, God. 
Is that what he's clocking in at now? Two fifty nine. I think so. You know. God, food will kill you. It's a doughy two sixty. Um, Elizabeth Warren brought up Guantanamo, and yeah, they ask her about Gitmo. Yeah, and what'd you call it? Gitmo. Gitmo? Yeah, that's what the the armed services call it. Yeah. Were you in the service? No, just I've heard people refer to it that way. Um, it still isn't closed, and Obama really wanted that closed, and there's only forty prisoners in there, and the cost of running it. Oh yeah, I heard was two hundred million dollars a year. And, and and just the idea of its existence. I mean, the fact that it is sort of on American soil, but sort of not. And so we can do kind of whatever we want there. It is it is morally very questionable. And it's very hard. Again, let's go. Let's bring it around full circle. Right. It's very hard for us to go to China and say, hey, stop doing what you're doing to Muslims when we're keeping our own sort of eyes and ears do no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, yeah, prison camp. It's not quite like that. It's, it's not the same thing. It's not the same 40 thing. 40 versus It's not the same thing, but everybody. you're either going to abide by your own rules or you're not. You're going to say the rules apply to everybody or they don't apply when I don't want them to apply. And the same. And Obama said he wanted uh, it closed and he couldn't get it done. This next president is going to say, if, if they are a Democrat, is going to say they want to get it closed and I don't know if they're going to be able to get it done. Has this ever been brought up to Trump and – does he have I can't on imagine it? he would have any problem with I mean he would love it. Let's get more people down there. I mean that's that's the thing is is when you take it over, it's like when when Obama took it over, it was George W. Bush's Gitmo. But once it's been open for six years under your presidency, it is now your Guantanamo. Let's assume tomorrow that let's let's say Bernie wins the presidency. On day one, it's going to be Donald Trump's Guantanamo Bay. But if he can't get it closed for six years, it's going to be Bernie's Guantanamo Bay. And and just because there is a a big chunk of Congress that says we cannot release these people into the general prison population, we cannot give them fair due process trials for national security, we got to do it this way. Hmm. It's very, very 24, very key for Sutherland. <laughs> I, I used to love that show. My wife was big into that show. I could never really get into it, but I found it very Machiavellian. Oh, there you go. Tupac reference. <laughs> oh, well, well, yes. Um, what was Bernie's rant about um, color and climate? So they ask him a question. It's very interesting. He and Biden both kind of missed the ball, Charlie Brown style, on this one. Um, yeah, that's the, Lucy's fault. The uh, the the reporter asked them about an Obama quote, where he had said that this country, basically, I'll paraphrase, has been run for too long by men and for too long by old white men, and that they need to get out of the way. So they went right to the oldest, whitest guy on the stage and the second oldest, whitest guy on the stage and asked them, is that right? Should should men get out of the way? And Bernie, instead of talking about empowering women, and instead of talking, he sort of went back to his greatest hits. Again, he started playing rich girl, again, and said, well, it's not about race, and it's not about gender, it's about rich versus poor. It's about class. And until you deal with that, it doesn't matter who's in the seats of power. Eh, Kind of a pass on what should have been a real chance to talk about gender equality in government and power. And Biden, uh, the same sort of thing, said, well, I know he wasn't talking about me. And I've got age and experience and wisdom. And yes, there should be more women, but I know what I'm doing. And, And taking it very much as sort of an attack on himself. And then finally they got to... 
Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar who talked about, hell yeah, I should do, there should be more women and say, you should start with me. And I'd, I'd you know, be the, the first president, woman president of the United States. Yeah, I think Bernie was also saying that um, the climate affects people of color quicker. Right. And I thought Yang, I think it was Yang, that was talking about we need to be proactive when it comes to climate. And, you know, like Lou, Venice and Italy and Louisiana here. Sure. And there are places in Georgia and Florida that natural disasters are just going to ramp up. Whole and, small island nations in the South Pacific that don't exist anymore. Right. You know, I mean, and just, Yang brought up a great point. We need to start relocating these people and, have to. and being proactive to protect our people. And then also transfer those people, not only location, but their job skills into a job market as well. And that's something that we don't talk about. And I thought I was really forward thinking. And who are the people who are living because of economics in the most at-risk areas? I mean, go back to Hurricane people Katrina. Color, yeah. You know, who was living in those wards? Who was living close to the levees that they didn't really pay that much attention to? People of color, because that's where the low-cost housing was. And, and that's, that's the same case all over the place. Yes, yeah, it is. Brownsville in New York, uh, Flint, Michigan. Look at Flint, Michigan in the water. I mean, these are the people who, and I know this is a flag that, that Cory Booker has waved a lot, is that people of color and low-income people are the first people on the front lines of the crap that you get with, with climate change. Hey, it's happening right now as we speak. What, what do you think? Where do you think the flooding is happening right now as this rain pounds down and will pound down tomorrow for the third day and, and the Skokomish and these different rivers flood? Do you think the people with the big houses up on the higher ground on, in Polsbo, do you think they're threatened? No, they absolutely aren't. It's the people in the trailer parks outside of Shelton. Maple those, Valley, Pialbrook Road. Those are the Road. people who are having to put sandbags outside their doors because that's where Marysville. they can afford to live. Yeah, there was some professor that did a great documentary on on soil, and he he talked about the flooding up north and how he had predicted that, and nobody listened to him. Yeah. And he made a film about it recently. I forgot what it was, but he's he's somebody I'd love to talk to at some point. Um, oh, the joke that Corey said he he went to Stanford. He was a all American high school football player, and he went to Stanford. And he's like. How I got into Stanford was a 4.0 in 1600, and I thought that was his grade point in his SAT score. He's like, no, it was four yards per carry in 1600 total yards. <laughs> Dig it. That's good. That's I like that. Oh, I loved it. He made a little video for my son, too, which was really I saw that. cool. Yeah, I had to share it. It was a proud, proud dad moment. Where, and it was, it was cool because... My son doesn't really post on social media, mm-hmm. but he posted that video and was like, um, hey, dad, if you're out there, you're pretty awesome. That's a keeper. That's yeah. a keeper, man. Uh, I really changed my tune on meeting him because the way he can spin a story about history into modern day is what stuck with me the most. Yeah. Um, so let's get out of here. Um, I want to talk about um, China a little bit more and insulin and and medicare a little bit okay because that seemed to be a hot topic you know i'm i'm a person that has four epi pins you know one in the oh, house wow. one in the car one in my gym bag and usually one in my pocket i did not know that and at what point they were 350 dollars yeah. after <laughs> after yeah. insurance and i have very very good health insurance and that brought, was brought up but i was unaware that insulin was also a similar situation like that and they talked a lot about people you know, sharing one dose of insulin, yeah. and then you talk about diabetes being, 
you know, pretty rampant through the American diet and these other reasons that people need insulin. How did we get here and where are we going with this? So if you want to talk to some people, if you want to get really heavy into the conspiracy theories, there are people that you could bring in here uh, who will spin you a yarn that I don't think is necessarily untrue that will will talk to you about the American restaurant and agricultural industry Mm. being hand in glove with the American profit medical establishment. So you've got one side – that gets you hooked on the fats and the salts and the sugars and destroys your health with a crappy diet because we do not live in a country where it's cheaper, easy to eat well. We live in a country where it's cheaper, easy to eat like crap. And then you need the medical supplies, which then if they're being provided to you by a for-profit corporation is basically looking at what is the highest dollar amount they can get for something that you have to have. I mean, the idea being the most extreme version is if if suddenly they got water, they would charge you out, you know, the wazoo for it because you got to have it. And there are some people who got to have insulin. They got to have EpiPens. It's not negotiable. So what happens? Then they've got you over an economic barrel and they can charge whatever they want. This is the argument for government supplied health care is that you have to even if you take out some of the efficiency, you have to have to have to take the profit motive out. Mm-hmm. Because as long as the profit motive is in there, that that corporation that provides those is going to charge as much as possible for your EpiPens and my statins and, and all these things that we got to got to have because the food companies, which again, if you're going to be into conspiracy theories, which I don't think this is too far out of conspiracy theory, which the dietary and food establishments and the McDonald's and the big corporations of the world – you know, got us hooked on and destroyed our health. Don't get me wrong. Nobody puts a gun to anybody's head and makes them eat a Big Mac. But when you have – and my wife, who just finished her master's on this stuff, uh, could, could talk to you about it for hours as a, as a dietitian and a chef. When you've got big chunks of America, especially in the inner cities, where there's no grocery store that has any kind of produce – Anywhere close to people. No farms. Yeah. What are, what are they, what are, where are they getting their food? They're getting it at 7-Eleven. They're getting it at the dollar store. They're getting it where, where it's crappy. And, and so you get people who are sicker and sicker and prone to diabetes, so they need the drugs that then the drug companies can jack up the prices on, blah, blah, blah. And it's a circle. So how do we get off this rat wheel? Again, if you, if you had my wife here, and, and maybe you should. She's pretty great. Um, she would, would tell you that the answer is education. The answer is when people can learn to cook for themselves, when they know just a little bit about diet and nutrition, when they know what kind of food is killing their kids versus what kind of food is helping their kids, when they can do some basic, basic cooking for themselves, then you don't have to order pizza three nights a week. You, you don't have to you know, DoorDash McDonald's. You, you don't have to do those things. And so you're setting yourself up for a healthier lifestyle. Look, I make a lot of fun of Marianne Williamson and nobody who did anything at Neverland Ranch should get within throwing a rock distance of the White House. But she did in that first debate say one thing that I think is very true. We don't have a health care system in this country. We have a sick care system. Our, our, our medical system in this country is very good. It's excellent. It's number one in the world at caring for you once you get sick. It's not very good at keeping you healthy, at doing those things like regular doctor visits, nutrition and health education, immunizations, those things that keep you from getting sick in the first place. If you have a catastrophic illness, if you've got brain cancer, if you've got heart disease, 
statistics tell us this is the country you want to be in. People come from all over the world to get our, our good stuff in that way. But in terms of keeping you healthy in the first place, we got a long way to go. Well, we're in the business. Yeah, I saw this the other day. It was like, we're the guys that giving the speech at, at um, medical school. Mm-hmm. He's up on the chalkboard. First thing he says, a cured patient is a lost patient. Mm. So we are in the business of continuing to bring back that customer. So it's not preventive medicine. It's treatment after the fact. And it's much like what I think is the prison system. We're not in rehabilitation. We're in the business of selling prisons and incarcerating people. If you've got for-profit prison, sure. And I'll take you back to to one of, I think, the great social critics of our time. I'll take you to Chris Rock in one of his early specials, Bring the Pain. He said about the cure for AIDS, he's like – They're not interested in curing AIDS. They don't want to do it. They want to get it so you can live with it, so they can keep selling you the medicine. It's like any pusher on a street corner. They don't make the money initially. They make it on the comeback. So the idea is we have a healthcare system that is not nearly as interested in curing you or helping you, God forbid, not get sick in the first place. It's about making, you know, making money off of chronic conditions, off of diabetes, off of uh, uh, heart disease, off of all these things that, by the way, when you look at what kills Americans most, all the top five things are diet related. Whether it's stress, heart disease, diabetes, diabetes, number three killer in America right now, number one cause of new blindness, okay? Murder, getting shot with a gun, what else, violent crime, way the hell down there. What we worry about is not what we need to worry about. All the top things are diet related, but that's hard work. It's hard to police your diet. Yeah, for sure. I haven't ate. I'm hungry. <laughs> I wanted to show you that I have all these notes and then it comes to Biden. Great notes. Yeah. Biden and there's nothing. You know, he didn't hurt. Honestly, if you're Joe Biden, you've got to lead nationally, but you're not leading anywhere but new in state wise. There's a lot of states where you're not leading. So don't get complacent, but you just got to not hurt yourself. And what does he keep doing? Again, don't imitate a stuttering kid on television. Especially when you stutter half the don't, time yourself. Don't talk in the last debate about we got to keep punching our way through women's uh, domestic abuse. Stu- I mean, it's it's almost like he's trying to – I can't imagine being one of his campaign staffers and standing off to the side of the stage and we're like, okay, we're almost through. We're almost through. Okay, how much time's left in this debate? Three minutes. Three minutes. I think we made it through three minutes. We, ma- we made it. He's not going to say anything else. And then you hear from coming on stage – and you go god damn it you know he did it again mm-hmm. he did it he is incapable of of not shooting himself in the foot and yet to go back to kamala harris and cory booker uh, you, you know you gotta bang your head on the desk and go how am i losing to this guy how am i losing to this person I mean, haven't there been seahawks games this year where where at some point in the game whether it's playing carolina or or you know some of these just truly awful teams and we suddenly look turn around we find ourselves either down or they've just scored 21 points unanswered in a row and you're going how are we losing to these people what yeah. is happening and you, you anybody who's not joe biden has to be looking at him and going how am i losing to this guy and yeah. yet they are Hey, don't lose to the Cardinals this week. Good gosh, please. Oh, they always have problems with the Cardinals. They always. always do. And uh, and any team with Larry Fitzgerald on it, don't count them out. My son's favorite player. He's a killer. He's Plus, great. we have quite a few injuries on defense, and they have a quarterback yeah. that's quite mobile. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to make this last point before we got out of here. You bet. Is um, something that 
was mind blowing to me last night was that China has all this pollution and now they've outlawed face masks for the reason that they have facial AI, identification facial yeah. through artificial intelligence and they're collecting the data on on all the people. So now you can't walk through the polluted country protecting your breathing rights. Any society has to decide it's wh- where its values are on the hierarchy. Do you value security more or do you value health and safety? Or do you value uh, 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 making sure everybody has food and medical care? Where, where are your values on that? And what you've got with that is China saying in a very concrete way, we value security and order higher than we value – or not necessarily not, but higher than we value the health of our people. And, and it's absolutely amazing. Look, it's true. If the United States stopped spewing all carbon tomorrow, tomorrow we account for 15% of what's going into the atmosphere. 15. So we're not going to change the fate of this planet without dealing with India and China and Europe and bringing everybody along for the ride. Okay? China is making it very clear that they value keeping order and making sure that we know who is who and we can track you down and we can find you and we can punish the guilty and we can use basically deterrent justice, making you scared of doing the wrong thing. Sell in fear. Uh, that th- That is more important. And and again, they would tell with with as many people as they have in as small a space as they're packed into, you gotta. When they are as invadable as they are, surrounded by all sides on by foreign powers and no oceans that, you know, Russia could come right in or whatever, that that's what you have to do. And it's very easy for us to talk about freedom and liberty when we have our oceans and we have our security. But by the way, it, don't don't let the United States off the hook here. When I say we would only be 15% of what's spewing into the air. If we don't stop and if we don't adjust our behavior, it is very difficult for us to turn to a developing nation, point our finger at fill in the blank, Indonesia, South Africa, whatever, and say, hey, stop poisoning the planet. Hey, stop doing what you do. Because then they come back and they go, wait a minute, you did. Yeah. While you were become so now that you're the big dog on the hill, you want to slam the door shut behind you and say no other country gets to develop unless we can do it super clean. That's a bit hypocritical. There there are estimates that up to a quarter of what is still in the air up uh, up above us in terms of of ozone and and carbon and everything is left over from the British in the Industrial Revolution. Wow. Of the 17 and, and, and early 1800s. That's how long that stuff stays around. So it's, it's very tough for us to, to speak with any kind of moral authority when we did it and we're not stopping. So why should when, when a country says, hey, I'm going to pull out of Paris too or I'm going to do whatever I need. There was a point in Chinese development in I believe it was the end of the 20th century around the middle of the 1990s when they were finishing up. They were cutting the ribbon on a dam a day. Let that sink in for a second. A dam a day. The Chinese, they used more concrete in five years that, than, than America had used in its entire history. That's how fast and that's how powerful they were putting up stuff. So what are we going to do? We're going to look at them and we're going to go, hey, take care of the planet. And they're going to go, you didn't. And you're not changing your behavior. But it's not a pissing contest to see who can destroy the planet more. But that's the thing. And we got to be careful about our rhetoric. It's not the, it's not the plan. Planet's going to be fine. 
Once we're you gone, think? planet's going to be great. Once human beings are off it, planet's going to come up with a whole new, you know, we're going to have new life form, new things are going to happen. It's going to be, we talk about saving the planet or destroying the planet or blah, 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 the planet. Planet's going to be fine. It's, it's us. Are we going to get to stay on the planet? Are we going to have it be livable for human beings? We shouldn't be talking about saving the planet because the planet to most people, especially people who've never traveled, is this ethereal uh, uh, you know, thing that's out there that they can't even visualize or get their brain around. We got to speak in terms of us, of people. Yeah. We're talking about saving us, making sure we can live here. Our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren have a livable place because the planet's going to be fine. Hey, every journey starts with one little step, and the step I would like to see more people take is one day, maybe Monday, Meatless Monday. Let's have environmental impact on the earth by not eating meat on Monday. Whatever you can do, hey, big, small, uh, yeah. One day you, well, shop local on Saturdays. Uh, you do not use a single-use plastic manufactured from China. You know, maybe yeah, you bring yeah. in your own tumbler to the coffee store instead of getting the plastic there. Mother Jones had a, had a great piece where they said, listen, what the planet needs is not – well, I, there I go again. Not, not the planet what, – what humanity needs is not 250,000 people recycling perfectly, separating out their clothes. We need 250 million doing the best you can do. Shout out do the to best you can. anybody out there that works in the waste management industry. That is a topic – I cannot find anybody to come in here and talk about. I think recycling may be dead and it may be costing us in unforeseen ways that we don't understand. And I would really like to have that conversation. And talk about a place where we are intertwined with the Chinese. Yes. I mean, they, they don't, they don't so buy our crap our, anymore. Yeah. And, and that's going to be uh, a big deal. Single-use plastics and microplastics. How much you're getting into your diet, how much you're getting into your body. And that's a place where we're intertwined with the Chinese. And so our relationship with them does matter. You think Look, Turn into Plastic Man where we're all stretchable and stuff I, like that? I, God, I hope not. I, the, the, I think the, the, the detriments outweigh the benefits. But, you know, when uh, Chris Peterson stepped down from the coach of, uh, coaching UW football uh, a week and a half ago, ago yeah. he, he, had a, he said that one of the reasons he did was this, this quote by Confucius was, was running around through his mind. And uh, it's one that, that I've always liked, too. Uh, Confucius said, we each of us get two lives. And the second begins the moment we realize we only get one. Wow. And I think that's, that's true of the planet. I think that's true of ecology. I think that's true of environmentalism. We, the, the second life of this planet will begin the, the moment a majority of us find it sinks in. We've only got the one. Well said, Confucius, Joel. Hey, Confucius. Hey, so you got your liquor license up? And you... We got almost everything. We're having our uh, Mason County Health Inspection on the 30th. I just found that out before I walked in here. And as soon as that's done, uh, we can throw open the doors and start letting people listen to music and eat soup and, and have a great sandwich and maybe play some Dungeons and & Dragons or whatever. And, and it's going to be great. Uh, Bardsbounty.com, if you haven't been on it. Um, and if you're a local musician in the Shelton or South Kitsap area, Love to have you on our stage. If you're somebody who is into D&D, uh, live on stage Tuesday and, and Sunday nights, love to have you. Come on down. Bard's Bounty. Nice. Yeah, in that Riverdale show, they have a and g instead of D&D. Yeah, &D, I know. Yeah. And then they um, kind of make that the upside-down bizarro world. Hilarious. Hey, well, I think this is it for 2019 for The Bystander. Um, we'll be recording a few more episodes, but I want everybody to have a very safe holiday and know that your health is your wealth. 
give yourself the gift of good health in the new year. Joel, you got any shout-outs for anybody? Anything you want to say? Not really. Just, uh, hey, guys, let's um, let's all be kind to each other out there. Be happy. And, and uh, it's, it's not about getting what you want. It's about wanting what you got. Wow. With that said, you've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind. Hey, Ralph Rain, take us out with some of that great music. Peace. Can you release the breeze? I see way too much now. We gotta turn it all around somehow. Tell me, can't you see? Oh, tell me, won't you release the rain? Somehow we got to turn it all around.